Turn your Bibles to Genesis 6. We'll be reading 11 through 22. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. As a church, we've been going through the book of Genesis for a while now. And before we get into today's text about Noah and the ark, um, I wanted to do just a quick recap with you guys to remember what all we've learned so far in the book of Genesis. And I love the book of Genesis. One of the reasons we, we picked it is that it sets up so many foundational truths about the Lord, about who Jesus is, about just a simple Christian basic worldview of how we understand the world as believers in Christ. And so um, just a quick reminder through that before we get into the story. First thing we learn in Genesis is just simply that God created everything. Um, it gives us this basic idea of when we see everything in this world, um, the stars, the planets, um, us as people, the animals, that it gives us this idea that God made all that, that there was nothing, there was, the, there was absolutely nothing, and then God spoke, and everything we see and know came into existence. Very early on, you see God saying, let us make man in our image. Um, and so from a Christian perspective, we see that there is only one God, but that he exists in three persons. So early on, even in the first chapter of Genesis, we get a glimpse into this idea that God is both um, single, he, there's only one God, but he is communal, that there are three persons in this one God. We get the idea that man is made in God's image, that there's something special about us. That's why we, we treat people um, differently with a different level of uh, respect and importance than we do any other part of creation. We see sin and temptation right from the beginning with Adam and Eve. Um, something we all face, something we all can relate to, the idea of um, that we have in our essence um, an, just an inclination to reject the authority of God, to do things on our own, to despise and dismiss his rule, his authority um, over our lives, to be suspicious that he really has our best interest in mind and to distrust him. And we we see 
where that comes from, why we are that way in the book of Genesis. Um, and then lastly, the, the thing we see in Genesis is redemption and hope, um, right? That after, after Adam and Eve sin, that God gives this, this hope to them, that he doesn't abandon them um, to their desires. He doesn't abandon them in their sin, but he provides solutions, he provides hope, he provides promises. Um, and as we look at a couple of those, I want to introduce you to what may be a new word for you. It's called typology. Um, typology is this. It's the study of figures, symbols, or shadows of something to come. So think of the word type. That In Genesis, you see a lot of types. You see a lot of things that are stories or people or events that they tell a story and they play a part in their own right, but ultimately, they're a shadow or a type or kind of a, a precursor to something greater and something bigger that's to come. Um, one of the first ways we see this is um, after Adam and Eve sin in the garden, and um, God is kind of divvying out the consequences for that, he makes Eve a promise, and he says, that he says to Eve, um, there will be enmity between you and the serpent. So there's going to be enmity, there's going to be a battle between mankind, Eve's offspring, um, and this tempter, um, basically the devil, the one who's tempting us to turn away from God. There's always going to be enmity between these two parties. And he says of the snake, you shall, you shall crush her heel. You're going to bite her heel, but she will crush your head. The offspring of Eve, he will crush the head of the serpent. So God just makes this promise that ultimately man is going to have victory over Satan. Ultimately someone is going to come, an offspring of Eve, who is going to conquer and defeat the enemy. You see this, this typology there, um, this, this foreshadow of what's going to happen. Um, you also see it when God clothes Adam and Eve, right? That after Adam and Eve sin, they realize they're naked. They try to cover themselves with fig leaves. And then God kills an animal to cover their nakedness and shame, which is, again, a, a foreshadow of what's going to happen later when God sends his son Jesus to, just like an animal had to die so that Adam and Eve's shame would be covered with their skin, right? That God would send Jesus, that Jesus would die in order to cover the consequences of sin. In order to provide for us in our sin and our weakness, something had to die. So the animals that God kills to cover Adam and Eve are a foreshadow, they're a type of Jesus. So all throughout um, Genesis, you see these types. Even Adam himself is a type. We looked at, a few weeks ago, we looked at Romans chapter 5 and how just like Adam was one man and through his one act of disobedience, one act of Adam's disobedience, death spread to all. And that he was in a sense a type of the one who was to come, a, a foreshadow of Jesus because in the life of Jesus we see through one man's obedience, life and forgiveness and freedom spread to all. So Adam's disobedience, one man's act of disobedience, death spread to all, setting the stage, setting kind of a shadow of the fact that Jesus would come, and through that one man's obedience, life and freedom and forgiveness would spread to all. You've got the story of Cain and Abel when, when, when he says, Abel's, God says, Abel's blood is, is crying out to me from the ground, right? That Cain, Abel's brother, kills him and acts like, tries to cover it up, and God said, I look, I look down and I see Abel's blood and it cries out. And what Abel's blood cries out is that there's guilt, that justice needs to be done. And we learn in the book of Hebrews that even Abel's blood was a foreshadow, it was a type of Jesus' blood. 
that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, that when Jesus died, his blood, instead of crying out, justice needs to be done, someone will be condemned. Jesus' blood cries out, justice has been done, and now people can be forgiven. So there's just this really cool things we see all throughout the book of Genesis where God is giving us these types and shadows that there is the story itself of Cain and Abel of Adam and Eve that tells us something, but the deeper, truer meaning is that it's all pointing as foreshadows, as glimpses, as types of what Jesus would do. And the story of Noah and the flood is no different, and we'll see that at the end. But before we, before we get there, I want to point out something that some of you guys may not know that this, this story of Noah and the flood is actually, it's actually a very common story um, in ancient cultures and in ancient religions. In fact, you could, you could point to any continent on the globe and there's at least one culture that has, that has a story in their culture, in their religion of a time when the world was completely submerged in water and only a few people survived with a few animals. Um, the Chinese um, culture has, has a story like this. The Babylonians have a story like this. The Incas of South America have a story like this. There's about 8 to 12, depending on how you're breaking up and count them, but it's a common story that's shared by all ancient cultures. Um, and what I want to do today is look at what makes the biblical account unique, what stands out about the Bible's account of the flood. Some of them aren't, aren't necessarily a global flood. Some of them just say the flood was like in a particular region, but that, but that everyone lived in that region. Um, and some people adopt that as, uh, as the biblical worldview. If you, if you read the book of, um, or the, the chapters in Genesis where it tells the story of the flood, you can make sense of that. You can say that maybe the flood wasn't global. Maybe all creatures and everyone that lived was contained in that one area at the time. Um, some, of, some, of the, some of the other ancient cultures have these stories that even are as specific as um, eight people being on the boat, all the animals, and then even sending out the birds um, like you see in the biblical account. But again, what I want to do this morning is look at what makes the biblical account unique. What, what makes it stand out as different from all these other flood stories of the ancient world? And we're going to do that by looking at three things. One is that the flood is punishment for sin. If you look at all the different flood accounts of other cultures, none of them carry with it this idea that God is in his justice punishing man for their sin and rebellion. And we're not going to spend a lot of time here because Lance covered most of that last week. But just so you know, some of the others, in the Babylonian account, it's simply that there are, it's, it's a pagan, right? So there's multiple gods, but it's that, it's that they were just annoyed by the noise of mankind. So obviously the people who came up with this account were parents. Um, so they just had this idea that the noise, the noise and, the, and, the, and the, the arguing was just too much for them, that they were just annoyed with it, so they just decided to wipe everyone out. And that even the, the ones that they saved weren't because they were righteous or different, but because they just kind of picked a favorite. Um, we really like this guy, so we're going to let him live. Um, the, the, there's um, the Chinese account in which it's just simply a natural phenomenon that the, the, the flood was gradual, it was getting worse and worse. And it's a story of um, engineering and how certain people were able to kind of deal with the rising waters um, and make it subside so that a few people could survive. Um, but, in, but in the biblical account, it's just simply God starting over. In fact, there's a lot of parallels with creation. Just like in Genesis chapter 1, it says that God looked on everything he made and it was good. 
Well, in Genesis chapter 6, the Bible says God looked down on the earth and it was corrupt, right? That in Genesis 1, he looked and it was good. In Genesis 6, he looks down and it's corrupt. Something has to change. Um, both begin, the creation account in Genesis 1 and the flood, both begin with this watery chaos of there water, being water over the whole earth and then God separating the water and the land. That, that you move from chaos to order. And in both accounts, just like when Adam is created, God says be fruitful and multiply. God says the same thing to Noah and his sons. After the flood waters subside and they go out of the ark, he says be fruitful and multiply. So what you see is that the flood is just kind of like a reset. It's like God purifying the earth from its evil and starting over. And the biblical account is the only one that describes it that way. The second thing that's unique is that God distinguishes between the righteous and sinners. Look there in chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. It says this. So, so, um, yeah, verses 8, I'm sorry. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Okay? So you've got this idea that Noah found favor in God's eyes. That God, as in his judgment, looks on the earth, but he doesn't treat everyone the same. That Noah is righteous and God treats him differently um, because of his righteousness. Now this can kind of get confusing um, because as Christians we believe that everyone has sinned. We believe that um, from the time Adam and Eve sinned that every single person has done things that are in rebellion to God, has done things that deserve condemnation from God, that deserves um, death because of our sin. And so on the one hand you look at the story of Noah and at first glance it could be kind of confusing because it's like well if everyone's sinned but the Bible says Noah was righteous until he was saved. How, how, can, how can Noah be someone who's sinned and also be someone who God calls righteous um, and save him from the judgment unlike anyone else? And I think one of the reasons that's confusing is because we've, we've, kind of, um, we've kind of maybe oversimplified God's view of sin. Um, and if I were to ask this question right now, if I were to ask you guys, is all sin the same in God's eyes? I wonder how you would answer that, especially those of you guys who've maybe grown up in church. If I say, is all sin the same in God's eyes? Now, on the one hand, it seems like a, somewhat of a simple question. I think, again, if you've grown up in church, you might, you might be tempted to just jump to say yes, right? All sin is the same, right? In James, it says that if we've broken one law, we're guilty of breaking the entire law. So in a sense, the answer is yes. In a sense, all sin is the same before God because all sins separate us from him. All sins are an act of rebellion against his authority. So there's a sense in which all sins are the same. Um, but the answer is not quite that simple. Right? If you look back at the Old Testament when God is telling them what the consequences for sin is going to be, there are, of course, greater consequences for greater sins, right? I mean, if you, if you get in a fight with your neighbor and you knock out his tooth, in the Old Testament law, it says a tooth for a tooth, right? Not every, some, sin, some punishment for sins are worse than others. And so God does see and differentiate between levels of sin. So what we really see in the story of Noah is not a guy who is perfect, um, but we do see God looking down on the world and kind of categorizing it this way that most of the people here have completely turned away from the Lord and ignored him and that Noah is a man who's seeking God that though he is not without sin 
He is righteous in the sense that he is seeking God, that he is different. And you see this idea that God distinguishes and differentiates between that, between the righteous and the sinners. It's interesting, too, that you see that Noah will still need divine intervention, that even though he's seen as righteous, he still needs to be rescued from the judgment that is to come. He's not rescued by his own efforts, but by divine grace, which is the third thing we see in this flood story, that God graciously rescues from the waters of judgment. It's interesting that we, we often think of Noah as being saved because of his works, because of his righteousness, but we forget that if God hadn't instructed him to build the ark, if God hadn't provided for him, if God hadn't stepped in and intervened, Noah and his family would have been wiped out, just like everyone else. So how is Noah saved from the waters of judgment? It's the same way we're saved when we believe in Jesus. It's by grace through faith. Noah was saved from the flood by grace through faith. That God in his grace and his mercy looked upon Noah with favor and said, I'm going to make a way for you and your family to survive the devastation and the floods of judgment that are to come. That God extended grace to Noah in making away for him, right? But in order to benefit from that, Noah had to trust God, that God did not just build the ark and set Noah on it and then send the floods, but Noah had to trust God and believe in God and exercise his faith. So we see that just like we are saved by believing in Jesus by grace through our faith, Noah was saved in the same way. And now I want to look at what the, what the waters really represent here in this story because the waters represent two things the first thing they represent is judgment right that God is judging the world he's it's his condemnation for sin but there's also a cleansing there's also a an element of God saying I'm going to clean this thing up and start over so the waters represent judgment and they represent cleansing what I want to do with the rest of the time is look at how this flood is really just a type or a symbol of what we know now today as baptism. Which is, it's crazy when you think about it, right? It's crazy that you look in the first six chapters of our Bible and all of the foundational truths we believe as Christians are all present and are all shouted and are all kind of given precursors in the first six to seven to eight chapters of our Bible, right? That there's almost like a poetry there, that all of the major themes, all of the major ideas and events about God, who he is and what he would do, they're all present and they're all shadowed in the first six to eight chapters of our Bible. Even the idea of baptism. First Peter connects the two really well. It says this, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, it says this, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water, baptism, which corresponds to this, so baptism corresponds to the flood, now saves you. Not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. So you've got this theme all throughout the scriptures of this, is that God rescues and delivers his people from a would-be watery grave. 
Think about it through that lens. That, that, that's the story of the flood, right? What should have been a watery grave for Noah and all his family, God rescues them out of that. God provides a way for them to be saved from what should have been a watery grave. Can you think of any other instances of that in Scripture? Think about Israel leaving Egypt, right? The Egyptians have finally said, okay, you guys can leave, get out of here. They go, and then they come up to the Red Sea, right? And so the Red Sea's in front of them. The Egyptians are behind them. It looks like what should be a watery grave for them. But what does God do? God parts the waters. He delivers them through the waters. And then as the Egyptians come in, God closes the waters as an act of judgment and condemnation of the Egyptians. So again, God delivers his people through a would-be watery grave. And that's the picture that the scriptures paint of baptism. That when we, when we baptize people out here in the pool at the YMCA, the idea is when they go under the water, it's like the, the waters in some sense represent both judgment and cleansing. That they're that should have been a watery grave that because of our sin, we should have died and that should have been it. But because of what Jesus has done, we've been raised up from the waters and given a new life. And so by God's grace, a way was made for us to pass through the judgment. And there's the element of cleansing that, that the, when we're ducked into the water, it's that our old self has died. Our old self is being taken care of. It's been done with and we're given a new life. Just like the old world was flooded and cleansed and started anew that when we go under the water that we are, our old life is being done away with, it's being washed away and we are given a brand new life, a clean slate as followers of Jesus. That's the beauty of the gospel. Think about it this way. When God flooded the earth in the time of Noah, he looked upon Noah as the righteous one, who again, we know that Noah was not truly 100% righteous, that he did have sin, right? That he wasn't completely pure and righteous the way Jesus was. But God took the righteous person and saved them from the judgment. He put Noah and the righteous on the boat to deliver them when judgment came. And here's the beauty of the gospel, is that Jesus switched it. Is that in the story of the gospel, when Jesus died on the cross, it's like he gave us his place on the boat. That God, in the story of the flood, God poured out his judgment and all the wickedness and all the evil, and he saved the righteous, but the story of the cross is the opposite. When God pull, poured out his judgment on the one who is truly righteous so that those of us who are unrighteous could have his spot on the boat. That God delivered us from what would have been, what should have been a watery grave. It's the picture of baptism. So the flood teaches us a lot. It teaches us about the character of God. It teaches us about how God differentiates between the righteous and sinners and ultimately how God rescues us from a would-be watery grave by grace through faith in Jesus. And there's another, there's all kinds of practical implications you could draw from the flood. There's all kinds of questions you could ask of this story and what do we learn and what do we take away from this? One of them that stuck out to me this week is this idea that God does not always rescue us the way that we want him to. I mean, think of, the flood is a crazy story. Well, can we just be honest about that, right? Like, I, I was, it's kind of struck me as that I was, I was reading these other accounts, and 
the, the Chinese account of the flood, there's this, uh, there's this, it's like an engineering story of how the waters were rising, rivers were overflowing, and, and the emperor tried to hire someone to, to do something about it. Well, he couldn't figure out a way to do it. He tried to dam it up, and it didn't work. And so finally, the solution was to not to dam it up, but to allow it to drain. And to do that, this guy named Yu, that's so Yu is in this story, this guy named Yu hired, um, or not hired, I suppose he didn't pay him, but recruited some giant tortoise god to dig out all these streams to, to create. A, and I'm, I'm just reading this going like, this is ridiculous. You know, this, this is a crazy story. I can't believe people believe this. But then it just kind of hit me like, for someone who's not grown up in church, that's exactly how they see what we believe. <laughs> I mean, is our story that we believe really that much um, less dramatic, right? Or, 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 or less outside the box, right? I mean, I, I was telling David this morning, Watkins and I were talking about it. I was uh, I was teaching about this at a at a Bible study once at a friend's house, and there was there was a guy there who was kind of on the fence about um, his faith, about whether or not he was truly bought into Christianity. And it, it kind of hit me as I was telling this story, like this is this is a crazy story, right? That waters came on the earth and stacked up so high, and that before it happened, all these animals got into this huge boat. And I was thinking about the size of the boat. Let me put it to you like this. Because um, it's kind of hard to, to get, really get a scale for how big the boat was when it gives all the cubits and stuff like that. So you guys know the, the, um, the parking lot in front of Target and Rockwall, right? Off a of ridge. That parking lot goes through like three or four stores, right? So if you were to take this ark, this boat that Noah built, and put it in the middle of that parking lot with the side of it facing the front doors of Target, it would be huge, Okay, that, 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 that's just to give you an idea of the scale of it. it. It would be massive. It would be something you would notice. Um, but but it, it really is a crazy story. And as I was telling it to the, to this, at this guy's house doing this Bible study, um, he, he mentioned this thing of, he had really hung up on the idea of, I can't believe that the whole world was at one time underwater. And just, just from a scientific perspective, how does that even work? Um, and then I mentioned to him that, well, a lot of people don't think that. A lot of people interpret the story of this flood being a regional thing, that that was where all the people lived at that time. And then it, it struck me as kind of odd that he was like okay with it then. I'm like, so you, you're okay with all the animals walking into the ark two by two in unison, but the idea of a global flood is just, is just crazy, huh? But here's the deal, like all of it is believable if you truly believe in an all-powerful God who spoke everything into existence. Right? I mean, if we truly believe in an all-powerful God who spoke everything into existence, that there was nothing he spoke and there was everything, and that he intervenes and interacts with his creation, then nothing is unbelievable, right? So this is foundational idea that if God created everything and if he is involved with his creation, we can trust that he is able to do anything. Um, so even though this story is, if you step outside of it with the kind of get outside the familiarity of it and see it's a crazy story, it's not hard to believe if you really believe that God created the whole earth and everything in it and that he is involved and interacts with his creation. What's crazy to me about this story, or striking, is how drastic it was when you think about the level of the flood and what God was trying to accomplish that God decides to rescue Noah from this, um, but the way he does it is really interesting. 
That that God could have done it in a day, he could have done it in a week, but instead God sends rains for 40 days and it says that, it says that once the waters reached the top of the highest mountain, right, that it kept raining and the water levels rose another 15 cubits, right? And one commentator mentioned this of like, what must Noah have been thinking, right? I mean, we, we, we think about Noah as this man of great faith. He trusted God to build the ark, right? He got on the ark. He's believing God when everyone else thought he was crazy. The waters keep rising. They keep rising. And after, after 40 days and they're continuing to rise, like, I wonder, I wonder if at any point Noah began to wonder if this thing was really going to work out, right? Because I'm just thinking if I'm Noah and God's plan is to wipe out the whole earth, the waters get to the, the top of the highest mountain and you begin to think, okay, that should be good, right? <laughs> We're good here. We got we to gotta start seeing things come back down. But instead, it keeps rising and keeps rising and keeps rising. I think one of the lessons we learned from that is that God doesn't always rescue the way we want him to, right? That I'm sure... Noah had to have had some doubt. He had to have had some difficulty with how extensive and how big this thing was of how long it lasted. And even as the waters came down, it took months and months. The idea is he was on the, on the boat for almost an entire year before they were able to get off and get on dry land. So it's one thing to talk about trusting God's provision, trusting God's protection through difficult situations. But it's another to think about the idea that he doesn't always rescue the way that we want him to. I mean, think about situations you've been in. When difficulties have come and you're trying to cling to the Lord, you're trying to trust him to deliver you, to bring you through those situations, and either his timing or the way he does that isn't quite what you would have pictured. But what we see in this is that God delivers on his promise. God, del- God tells Noah, I'm going to save you from this. Noah had to have been wondering if God was going to make good on that. And he had to wait probably way longer than he thought he would have had to. But he continues to trust and God makes good on his promise. One of the commentators I read said it this way. He said, for we know that we are accustomed to imagine God absent, except when we have some sensible experience of his presence. In other words, all of us have this temptation to think that God is disassociated, that he is pulled back, that he is not involved, that he is not attentive, except when we really have that sense and that feeling that he is. Unless we really sense God moving and comforting us, we tend to drift towards this thinking that he is absent, that he's uninvolved, that he doesn't care, that he's backed away, that he's not paying attention, that he doesn't have our good in mind. And he goes on to say, and although Noah tenaciously held fast to the promise, it is yet credible that he was grievously assailed by various temptations. That surely Noah, although holding fast to God, was tempted to lose faith throughout his time on the boat after being on there for the better part of a year. Surely there were difficulties in trusting. And that just stood out to me because I think about how long he had to wait for deliverance. I think about how long Israel had to wait for deliverance from the Egyptians and how God's timing and deliverance doesn't always add up the way we want it to. I thought about a 
a friend of mine I've known who passed away this week. And I'm sure that's not the type of deliverance his family was praying for when they found out that he had cancer, right? I'm sure that's not how they were hoping God would deliver him through that difficulty. But the idea is that even in death, right? Even in something like a global flood or death of a family member, God doesn't always deliver the way and at the time that we want him to. But when we look back on the scriptures, we can see and trust that he always comes through. He always comes through. When Adam and Eve sinned, he came through with a plan, right? With Noah and the flood, he came through. With Israel and Egypt, he came through. It, took, it was harder and it was difficult and it took longer and it wasn't the deliverance probably in the way that they were hoping for, but God came through. And so when we see this story, you think about Noah being on the ark for that long and how crazy it was for him to trust God's deliverance in the midst of something. It's funny how we always, we always um, illustrate difficult times with storms, right? Like the storms of life. Like this was quite the storm, right? I mean, if, there were ever, if there were ever a stormy season in one's life, it was with Noah, right? I mean, 40 days, 40 nights, 150 days after they touch, touch ground before they can even step foot. Man, like, to think about the patience required, but to look back and see how in every one of those situations throughout our Bibles, God always delivers. He always comes through. But can we trust him when he does that in a way that's not the way that we want think that we can if we remember his promise. God, I think that had to have been the only the only way Noah could have made it through that and kept his sanity was remembering God's promise that, you know, three months in, four months in, five months in looking back and going, but God said and everything has happened according to his plan. Everything's happened the way he said it would, just not the way I thought it would. But he had to lean back and trust in God even when his deliverance didn't come the way he wanted. Let's pray. God, thank you for this story of, of Noah. Even though it's, and I can see how someone who doesn't believe in you might, might think it's a crazy story, and it is a crazy story, um, that we see a picture, not just of your judgment, but of your deliverance for those who trust in you. But we also see that that doesn't come the way we would expect, the way we would ask for it, the way we would want it. So God, I just pray that as we consider this story and we, we come through difficult times in our lives, times that are maybe prolonged or maybe the intensity of it is more than we feel like we can bear, that we would remember that you're a God who makes good on his promises, that you're a God who ultimately delivers us from storms, Delivers, delivers us from what would be a watery grave. I pray in Christ's name, amen.